0: And uh, before I begin the reading of today's passage, which will be Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I just want to introduce the new uh, the sermon series that we're going to find ourselves in the next couple of weeks. The schedule is in the back of your bulletin. We're going to be looking at a couple of the births of the Old Testament, the unique uh, children that God used Um, in order to accomplish his purposes. And so we will look at Moses, and we will look at Samuel, and we will look at Samson, prophet in Moses, a priest in Samuel, and an early type of king in Samson. And then we will come together on Christmas Eve and look together at the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of all the threads the Old Testament. And so with that, let us begin reading God's holy word, starting in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her Young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? Father God, just ask simply that you take this text written thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago and you apply it to our own situations, our own lives through the power of the Spirit. May it speak to us just as this moment spoke to your people long ago. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin our text in a time in history where a powerful society had a great moral decay. And a nation that had enjoyed being the top superpower of its time. And that a nation that they had leaders that enjoyed financial wealth and prosperity beyond imagination. I speak, of course, of ancient Egypt. Who achieved heights and feats that still dress up the desert landscapes of this world. And yet in the first two chapters of Exodus, Egypt in all its power and all its dominance and all its grandeur began the barbaric practice of authorizing the killing of undesirable children. Children from the wrong kinds of families children in this superpower's case, more specifically from Jewish families. But how did that society get to such a point? A point where even infanticide was openly practiced. It all begins because Egypt started to take notice in chapter 1 of the prosperity of God's people. Of how those who followed God were having Blessings fall upon them uh, and a thriving as a people that was unique to them. And so they began to be jealous of that prosperity and began to desire to place heavy burdens upon them. And yet 400 years earlier, this same clan of Israel's sons that Egypt has now grown to distrust had through the son of Israel, Joseph, helped save Egypt helped create it into the superpower that it was. So their fear of Israel was an unreasonable one if they remembered their history. Egypt had greatly prospered because it was connected to the people of God and had been blessed by their wisdom. Yet Egypt had forgotten this truth and decided to ensnare and enslave and eventually even kill the Jews. You could say in one sense, Moses' birth was during the time of the first Jewish Holocaust. Egypt, of course, Egypt over the course of 400 years, 400 years, had gone from a favored nation of God into a wicked one. That's how long it took. Do you know what this land was like roughly 400 years ago? You should. This week, we all, in various ways, probably celebrated it. The first Thanksgiving in America was in 1621. Which means next year's Thanksgiving will be the 400th anniversary. By the way, just to give you perspective, because you're worshiping in a historic church, there is a shorter distance between when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock on the Mayflower... To when this church was first built then from us today to the outbreak and start of World War I. Kind of incredible to think about. Um, so uh, that's just thoughts that you know you stockings appreciate those kinds of thoughts. Next year will mark 400 years when a group of reformed exiles came Seeking a freedom of religion, a freedom of expression, a freedom from persecution that they weren't enjoying in their lands. They came to America in order to find it. And yet, as I read several articles this past week, there is a movement wanting to even do away with Thanksgiving. Saying that the values Thanksgiving promotes, the Christian worldview it came from, and the events that surrounded it are oppressive and not worth continuing. They are toxic, they now say, to American society. America believes, maybe not so unlike Egypt, that it has progressed beyond the wisdom of Jesus and a Christian worldview. And now it's open season to blame Christianity of all sorts of ills in our modern day that are unfair characterizations and gross generalizations derived at a shallow understandings of history so needless to say whether you're talking about Exodus chapter 2 or America today a lot can change in 400 years and this is what had taken place in a dramatic way for the people of Egypt and Israel at the time of Moses' birth the family of Israel had gone from a people who helped bless Egypt in their first coming into public enemy number 1 To the point where they were forcibly murdering Israeli infant boys. And yet our passage this morning begins with a husband and wife having courage in such a world. A husband and wife daring to be married to one another in such a world. Daring to have children in such a world. To produce a child knowing the hardships that that child might face in precarious times. Isn't it interesting how Moses decided to write this all down? the details of his birth. He doesn't mention the names of his parents, as he will later on in Exodus. For instance, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. For now, he keeps his family nameless. And he just tells you they were part of Levi's line. And he, he goes back to the beginning of his parents' marriage. But this is also interesting because Moses isn't the oldest child in his family. He has an older brother, Aaron, who was born under a different pharaoh and was not under a decree of death. He also um, has a sister Miriam who is talked about unnamed in our passage today. So why is Moses so vague in the details of his specific family at this moment? Why does he write it this way? I believe he tells his birth narrative in the way he does because he's trying to teach us something about how God likes to work in households and families. God in his word likes to celebrate ordinary faith in trying times. God knows when it comes to the matter of being faithful, it often comes down to simple people continuing to move forward in faith during times of difficulty. People learning to place more trust in God's protection, even when there seems to be ample reason to not trust him. God blesses such simple faith abundantly. Are you continuing to have doubts about the world we're living in? About how to perceive, about how to move forward in life during these times? For Moses' parents, Moses became the gift that ultimately would reward their continued faith in troubling times. Not just with blessings in some short-term kind of sense, but in a more ultimate sense, the child they had delivered in faith together will, through the power of God, deliver all of Israel from the bondage and the hardship faced in Egypt. Actually, it's quite incredible in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 23, it gives us a little more insight to Exodus, chapter 2, verse 2 when it adds one additional detail of why Moses' parents decided to have him, even though there was great uncertainty whether or not the child would even be allowed to live. As the preacher of Hebrews puts it, Moses' parents defied Pharaoh and his edicts because his parents were not afraid of either the king or his commands. You have heard that correctly. The parents of Moses decided... To have the child who would become Moses in direct opposition to Pharaoh in order to combat Pharaoh's unjust decrees. Because the word of God tells us in Hebrews, his parents were unafraid of the power Pharaoh held, uh, held over them. We are allowed to push back as Christians, as followers of God, on bad government from time to time. Not every edict or directive by an earthly authority, needs to be obeyed and followed. And no edict aimed at destroying or calling the faithful of God needs to be feared. In my home city of San Diego right now, the strip clubs are open, but the church- churches are closed. If you don't find a troubling imbalance there between our government rulers, I'm telling telling you, you're not looking hard enough. Why are they trying to call one group, but another group have at it, open season? Whatever your heart enjoys, we can boldly continue forward while governments try to control us through fear, through slander, through rules and regulations that are unjust and would cause us to violate the word of God. God loves to bless such faithfulness. God loves to bless such simple expressions of enduring faith in trying times. might get in trouble here, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, it's interesting when this pandemic started. We were the only church, as I was told by others, that never closed its doors on Sunday within this region. And I don't say that in order to gloat. It was a difficult decision, and it still remains a difficult decision every week. I've even, I even had pastors calling me, especially early on, with criticizing the decision, to which I reminded them, sure, I'll, I'll shut down old Goshenop, and I'll show up, however, with a Bible to Lowe's and start preaching, and that will be legal. But that seems less safe to me. And let me be clear, I still think it's okay if you think differently than your pastor on this issue, Um, it's okay if you disagree with me on this. And I want to thank a great many of you who have expressed disagreement, and that's okay with me in a biblical way, through emails, through having conversations with me, not through gossip and division. But still, my conviction is that it was the right decision. Because a church is the most important hospital of all. Because it deals with eternal realities. The doctors of Grandview and alike, they treat temporary things. The gospel gives an eternal hope, an eternal salvation. And I don't think it's coincidence, I really don't, even though I have not mentioned this publicly uh, from the pulpit, I don't think it's coincidence that God blessed our congregation with more than 20,000 meals to distribute to hand out to the needy in our community shortly after that decision. And it only took four staggered afternoons to dispense all 40,000 meals. I I look at this God of Exodus chapter 2, and God just blesses simple steps of faith. And I think in many ways, God has allowed his hand of protection to be seen by this congregation, especially in the last year and a half from the tornado to now, in just a glorious way of his moving. And he loves to bless us as a people by displaying, when we display simple faith in trying times. That's just who he is, and that's what he has illustrated in the first verses of Exodus chapter 2. But now in returning to the text in verse 3, the mother of Moses makes a decision for the child. She is going to do something difficult, but placing her faith in God's protection, she builds in the Hebrew what is in one sense an ark. And casts her child upon the waters, similar in one sense to the earlier prophet Noah, who was delivered from the great wickedness of his day by the waters. It's easy to have faith when Moses was protected at home, but it's a whole nother thing to commit your child into the care of God in the waters of the Nile. This moment God sets in motion has a degree of irony in it. There's actually this popular legend uh, in Egyptian time of a uh, legend of Sargon, a popular story in Egypt where... Uh, They had a ruler who was cast out on the waters, and his was kind of a riches to rags to riches story. And sometimes people will look at those fables, and and they'll say, Aha, see? See? The Bible isn't true. It's just a bunch of made-up stories. But I know the women who participate in the Exodus story know, or the Exodus series know, how God will war against Egypt... In this book of the Bible is in large part by mocking the false gods of the ancient world. He likes to take the things that have power over us and show that he has greater power than them. If you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, how he mocks the rain god of Baal, it's a little bit of how Moses is going to be led by God to attack Egypt. Egypt. To mock the false gods of Egypt. He loves to use what a culture draws his identity from. In order to either bless it. If it follows his statutes. Or judge it when it stands entirely opposed to him. He will crush the Egyptian false gods. The false narratives. The false confidence they have. In order that he might show his grander power and glory over them. And so the mother of Moses let go of the baby in the Nile, entrusting him into the Lord. However, the Lord uses a new watchwoman to make sure Moses is okay. This time, the woman is Moses' sister. As Miriam watches over her brother from afar, Pharaoh's own daughter comes to bathe at the river with her attendants nearby. Something so improbable were to see God's hand in orchestrating it. And the daughter of Pharaoh spots a basket in the reeds of water and asks her attendants to fetch it for her. And it comes before her, and the baby in the basket is revealed, and she sees a helpless Hebrew baby crying before her eyes. By the way, in the entire Old Testament, this is the only time a baby is said to have cried. Here, in Moses. This is a unique moment of a crying infant who has been abandoned in the Old Testament. An abandoned child crying. And he is now in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter knows exactly why this baby is in the water. The baby is in the water because of her father. And so she has a decision to make. Either listen to the word of her father, Pharaoh, who has a hardened heart, That would require her to allow the baby to die. To drop it into the water. Or allow herself to be moved by grace and goodness. And she chooses wisely. She chooses grace and goodness. And surely God is the one. Who can soften a Pharaoh's daughter's heart. With such love and compassion. And ironically in this book, 12 chapters later, no longer will Hebrew babies be thrown into the water and drowned in water, but it will be Pharaoh's own armies who refuse to follow Yahweh, refuse to submit to Yahweh, and are still ruled by the hardened words of Pharaoh. They will be sent into the water, and they will be drowned. Hardness to the things of God only endures so long in this world, For those who hate God and his people, that same hate, if not repented of, will ultimately crush them in judgment. And so in these few short verses, we now have a third woman protecting this infant child. And Miriam, Moses' sister, sees this opportunity and approaches the princess and asks if she wants her to fetch a Hebrew wet nurse to feed the baby. And the princess agrees, and so Miriam runs with the good news to her mom and leads her back to the princess and the child, and an agreement is struck. The biological mom agrees to become the princess's wet nurse. She would raise the child for a time and then present the child, once fully weaned, from Pharaoh's court, normally a period of three years in the ancient world. And the daughter of Pharaoh would raise him as her own, And then Pharaoh's daughter names the child because she drew him out of the water, Moses. The child, once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree, will become the very instrument of Pharaoh's destruction. To look at it in a slightly different way... Pharaoh's wickedness sets in motion Moses being cast upon the waters, and yet God uses those same waters to bring new life to Moses and give his people liberation from Pharaoh's unjust laws. The Lord shows his strength by meeting his people in their hopelessness and working through those circumstances in an ultimate good. Pharaoh wishes to control God's people by casting infants into the Nile, but God saves his people by having a single abandoned boy cast onto the Nile and to be saved. This story of the infant Moses allows us to remember that God really does work things out in our life in an ultimate sense for our own good. You know, oftentimes I'll make a visit with someone, and, and they are in a hard, hard situation. And I, and I sometimes try to th- think and search in my mind, what's, what insight, what little thing can I tell this person in this situation to help take some of their pain away? And when I'm thinking that way, often I, I fail. Because the reality of Scripture, as it shows here, shows that the inner workings of God's plan in times of hardship, of His design, are are really beyond our personal understanding. None of us can predict what tomorrow exactly looks like, yet God has set things in motion, and He calls upon us to place our faith in Him, that He will work it all out to our benefit. As God reminds us in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. One day Jesus will come alongside of us, either through the power of the Spirit, sometimes in subtlety, or one day when we are before him in heaven, and he will start pointing out things to us, amazing things he was able to accomplish through the trials and hardships of our own life. He'll say in his own way, not necessarily, again, so we can hear, but he'll say, you see... You see why you had that season of struggle? You see why you had that period of hardship? Why I had you endure that time of trial and temptation? Or that time of betrayal? Don't you see now the incredible things I accomplished through it? As you continue to walk with me and walk beside me in faith. And with eyes that can now see, see more clearly, we'll respond to our Lord saying, yes, Lord. And your handiwork is incredible, and it's good, and it's greater than any piece of artwork, any, any other thing that we can see in all this world. We are not supposed to read this passage and leave it thinking Pharaoh made some decree to kill male Israelites and God's left scratching his head and and tries to fix the problem. God was already using the very things that Pharaoh was trying to enact in his own wickedness in order to crush Pharaoh. The same thing is happening in our world today. We continue to live in a world where on so many issues across the board, wickedness and evil seem to be thriving. And it's tempting for us to say, I really can't trust you, Lord, in an environment like this. Or as I've heard many parents say, and maybe in our own household we've said this during this time, why, God, why are my children going to have to navigate such a world? I don't want them to have to be cast out into such a world. So many people seem to be drowning out there. In the raging rivers of the culture set before them, I don't want them to go out into such a world. And yet here in Exodus chapter 2, we've come to see how God blesses the simple faith of parents, grandparents, of families who continue on in faith and trust in the Lord and lean not on their own understanding. The crying, abandoned baby was placed on the very spot In time and history where he could serve to be the answer to the cries of God's people and save them. And yet, am I still talking about Moses? Or now have I ventured into talking about the greater Moses, Jesus? Because Jesus, the ultimate savior, we celebrate the coming of this morning and beginning Advent, survived not only the worldly leaders who wanted to kill him as an infant... But battle directly with Satan and sin itself. And in that crushing of Satan and sin through resisting trials and temptation, the child of Christ becomes the greatest redeemer and savior, savior to all those who come to God with their cries of deliverance and desire to be rescued from this world. God gave us a new covenant where he saved a people from every tribe, every nation, from the fullness of death by first going through death's chaotic waters and allowing them to entirely envelop him. In one sense, he's the truer Jonah. Sin and death and the wrath we deserved were crushed by Jesus overcoming the powers of hell itself. That is why the preacher of the book of Hebrews can tell us the following about Jesus at the beginning of chapter 3 when comparing him to Moses. The preacher proclaims, starting in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son of God. Over God's house. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly. To our confidence. And the hope. In which we glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ. While the story of Moses is a fantastic one. Of humble beginnings. To a great prophet. And while Moses and his household will accomplish incredible things through a simple and steadfast faith in both a nation and a world that will be set against them throughout his life. Moses' story in an ultimate sense helps point to the greater Moses, who was the one who came in a manger a little over 2,000 years ago. Jesus is God's faithful son whose glory is without equal. Because by his precious blood he has saved us all from the chaotic judgment of sin and Satan itself that would have sifted us like wheat and destroyed us if not for the love of Christ. Let us then desire to grow in greater trust to him because in him we have received freedom from all fear, all anxiety over every, anything and everything this world might throw at us, in order to undo us, in order to create with us a doubting heart of his guiding hand. Let the goodness and mercy of our God extend its arms to us each and every morning. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Good and gracious Father, you have truly been good to this congregation in the last year and a half. In ways unseen by the world, the world would look at what has happened to us, and tornadoes, and, and shutdowns, and lockdowns, and alike, and pandemics, and say, oh, they are most cursed of all. And yet, we've seen your faithful hand work out amongst us. And so for that, we give you all the glory. You are the God who rescues those who have a simple faith a simple trust in you. And so help us to trust you more greatly as the world tries to undo us, as it tries to scare us, as it tries to tell us reasons why we should not gather together in worship of you. Help us to have confidence and have a hope in the one who has blessed us through the shedding of his blood and enduring death for our sake